morning, everybody. So glad you were here. I want to say a special good morning to those that are online. I want to say hello to all the dove hunters out there that have stopped what they're doing right out there walking to check out your phone and your app and to worship with us. But seriously, wherever you are in the world, uh, whether you're near or you're far, again, we're just so honored that you worship with us week after week after week online. And if you're ever driving through here and you're close to the church house, please stop by, uh, have a cup of coffee with us. We'd love to meet you and connect with you. And the same those that are in the house, I know it's Labor Day weekend, and if you're here for the very first time on Labor Day weekend, I want to say you're a stud, or you're a studette. You apply it however you want to. That you would actually seek out a place to worship on a holiday weekend, I would say is pretty amazing. And we know maybe you're just getting settled into a new place to live and, and finding a church is a part of your endeavor. And we welcome you. And I also want to say something to those that you worship here week after week, and you say this is your church home. I want to say thank you. I, I do not take you for granted. I know we're living in a time of free agents. Nobody stays with one team very long. Have you noticed? Nobody stays with one team very long. They go from team to team to team to team in the pros. Now they do it even in college. College football here. Everybody kind of, and people do it in churches too. And so many of you, though, have said, this is my church home. I'm driving a stake in the ground. And I just want to say thank you for all that you do, how all the way you serve to make this such a beautiful and marvelous place. I give thanks for you. We'd love to meet you and connect with you outwards. afterwards. If you're new, please give us that chance. Right now, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to find them and turn to this little book of Esther. We're going to wrap it up this morning. This has been a three-week series, but really it's just been one message that's extended over three weeks. And we're going to wrap it up this morning. And next weekend, we're starting something brand new, so we hope you'll come back. We're going to start a nine-month study of the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to take us all the way into May. We're going to break it up into about four or five messages. We'll take a break during Christmas. We'll take a break during Holy Week before Easter. But other than that, we're going to be in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, some of the most powerful teaching that Jesus ever came out of his mouth. And I'll make you a promise right now. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, and if you don't, you're welcome here. If you don't believe in Jesus, but you practice the teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it'll change your life, and it'll change the lives of the people around you. So I encourage you next week to come back as we start this, this new thing for a few, few months. Let's open with, in prayer. God, we're about to open up your book again, this rich, wonderful little thing called the Bible. And many of us, God, are still seeking a deeper understanding on why we live and why we're here. Some God just feel like we're just living from day to day to day. We're in a rut, God. Uh, we're just kind of passing time, waiting for the weekend, uh, waiting to get off work, uh, just waiting for a vacation, waiting for Labor Day, waiting for the next day off, waiting for summer, waiting for Christmas. God, just, just forgive us, God. And we need your guidance and help as we open up your word to give some more specific direction for each of our lives. So I ask you to speak as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's where we are so far in the story to catch those up. And if you want to catch up, you can go online and do so. You can download the app and you'll see all the messages right there. Uh, you can go to our website. You can subscribe to YouTube and we'll send you a little note. You can find it on a podcast. Every week they're posted on podcasts. But please consider catching up so you better understand what we're going to do this morning. So, so far in the story, we have learned that God's people who are called Israel, they are living in exile. And the place they're living is in Persia. They're living under the rule of a king whose name is Xerxes. And he has a shadow mission. His whole life is centered around pe people being a people pleaser. 
about seeking pleasure and going to parties. This guy is a party animal. He loves to host parties with lots of drinking all the time. You read it. I mean, it's right there in the Bible. Always lots of drinking, lots of parties going on. His top official is named Haman. Haman is his chief of staff. He also has a shadow mission. And he has a big ego just like the king. But his shadow mission is a little darker. He likes to control people. And if people don't bow down to him, he will control them in some very negative ways. And he has set into motion a plan to annihilate, to destroy, to remove from the face of the earth anyone who is Jewish. Now, we have been learning these past couple of weeks that every single one of us can have a shadow mission, and we do. That if we are not careful, it's very easy for my life to deteriorate where all I focus on is money and wealth and security and safety and other people liking me and other people accepting me. And you spend, you're consumed with all your time around something like that. Now, meanwhile, while all this is going on, we too have shadow missions. A little girl named Esther, a little Jewish girl, becomes queen. And her primary guardian, the person speaking into her life, is a man named Mordecai, who was a high-level chief in the people of Israel, in the nation of the Jewish people. And he goes to Esther and says, I have a challenge for you. you got to go talk to your new husband, the king, and tell him to not annihilate, not to kill all of our people. And he tells her right here in chapter 4 at the very end of verse 14, and who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, I have that word position circled in my Bible because what we have learned so far is that God has got you in a position. And when you understand your position, you can begin to identify your mission, that is your calling, the purpose God has upon your life. Now, it may be something very simple as this. It may be that your position right now, what God wants you to focus on is to be the very best spouse that you can be. Maybe God right now in this season of your life has positioned you to be an awesome and amazing parent because your kids need you in a unique way right now. Maybe to be a unique, awesome sort of grandparent or a father-in-law or a mother-in-law that knows the right place to be in your kids' life as their family is growing. Maybe your, your position right now is in a friendship, that you have a friend that needs you like no other time in their life. Maybe you work in a company, you work in an organization, and there's something going on. Maybe for you, it's just to be the very best encourager that you can be for people. Maybe your mission or your thing for this time in your life is to mentor somebody and prepare them and equip them for the new thing that God wants to do in your life. I don't know what that is, but I do know that the mission or the calling God has upon your life has something to do with your current position that you're in. Now, I want you to think about what you think that might be right now if you've had any luck in working on this. And you have a place in your notes where it says, my current God mission is. And I want to encourage you to write down a thought, a word that you kind of think, I kind of think this might be for this time of my life, the purpose or the mission for which I'm alive. Maybe it's in the bucket of your family. That right now there's somebody in your family. And you know in your family, this is where i got to be focusing my 
best right now. Maybe right now it's in your church. Maybe last weekend you got touched and your eyes were open about children or about youth or some other issue you saw out there in the cross. You know what? Right now I need to focus. This is how God has called me for this time right here. Maybe it's in the community. Maybe it's in the world where you work. Maybe it's in the town where you live. You know what? I sense God calling me to to get involved in this and to use me to help make the world a better place. Whatever it is, as we work through this message, I want to ask you to think, keep that in mind. And if something pops up, jot it down right there. Now, let me give you what my mission statement is. I'm not asking you to do anything that I have not done myself. And I forged this many years ago. We'll put it on the screen so you can see it, but it's in a picture from the front of my Bible. Here it is. To raise a family that will raise future generations for Jesus. To raise up a church that will demonstrate the kingdom of God on planet Earth. Why next Saturday are we we asking you to think about giving blood? Because life is in the blood. People don't have blood, they don't live. In heaven, God has given life. Why the food thing next Sunday? Because God has a heart for the poor. That we want to do on earth what God is doing in heaven. And God has a heart for those who are hungry, have nothing to eat. And then the third one is to equip church leaders that will influence future generations for Jesus Christ. I spend the majority of my time and my energy and my very best on those three things. Those are the priorities in my life. So I ask you. What is the difficult assignment for which God has called you? And I will make you a little promise here. What's hard is not identifying your shadow mission. That's not hard. What's hard is not identifying your God mission or purpose. What's hard is doing it. What's hard is living it out. When you find yourself in the face of obstacles and difficulties and a feeling of inadequacy, that's when it gets hard. And that's why we have titled this final message of this little three-week series, Difficult Assignments. Because I promise you, any call God has upon your life will have a measure of difficulty. It will. Now, back to the story. So the very first thing that Esther does, it says right here, and she responds to Mordecai in verse 16 of chapter 4. All right, I hear what you're saying. I got a mission, I got a calling, I got a position. So go together all the Jew, to all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast just like you. And when this is done, then I'll go to the king. And even though it's against the law, if I perish, I perish. Now, when you read this text, the story of Esther, so far in the first three chapters... We do not see that Esther ever asked God for help to be queen. The kings established this criteria. Here's what I'm looking for in a queen. Number one, she is beautiful. Number two, she can please me. Esther can accomplish that just with her own gifts. She doesn't need any help doing that. Her natural giftedness can accomplish that. But now God has given her a mission with her gifts But even with her gifts, she cannot accomplish it on her own. So she is going to fast and pray. Now, when you read the Bible, you're going to notice often the word fasting and praying are in the same sentence. And you think, why is that? And here it is. 
Most of the time, you and I think we are fully independent. It's my life. I don't need any help. I can do this by myself. I got it. I'm not going to ask for help. I can do it. I'm not going to ask her. I'm not going to ask him. Certainly not going to ask God. But then you fast while you're praying. And when you fast, you finally get to a point where you're hungry and you realize, you know what? I'm not self-sufficient. I need food to be alive. I need someone from the outside to provide something for me so I can live on the inside. And you're aware you're dependent upon someone else to provide for you that on your own you will not live and you will not survive. And so she's fasting for three days. And so you can imagine what she's doing in this time of fasting. She's thinking about the risk she's about to take to go in there and talk to the king. She could be losing her own life. I can imagine her thinking, hey, what would happen if I don't go, to, if I don't do this? My people will be annihilated. I can picture her imagining what she's going to say to the king, how she's going to talk to him in this time of fasting and prayer. I can imagine that she's thinking in past about all the ways that God had been faithful to the people of Israel, how he had worked through the giants of Abraham and Moses and David. In other words, there in your notes, here's the very first thing, ask God for help. If you're going to have a difficult, God gives you a difficult assignment, just don't do it on your own, ask God for help. I have found that when I have a difficult assignment, and I will tell you, I have one every single day. When you're dealing with people, and if you have any human being in your life beside yourself, I promise you, you will have a difficult assignment on that day. Because people, you know what I mean, life is good until the people show up, right? So, I have found that if I do not go to God, and I do not ask God for help, and I pray it through, and I have a clear picture of the outcome of what it needs to be, if I don't do that, I mess it up and make it worse. But when I do that, I get an insight and an awareness that I did not have before I went into this time of prayer. So the first thing you do, that when God gives you a mission, you do not start it without asking God for help, without seeking it. Number two is, then you ask others to ask God to help you. So not only are you going to ask God to help, you're going to ask other people, and that's exactly what she does. It says right there in the text in verse 16 at the end, hey, listen, I'm going to do this, but I want you to ask all the Jews in Susa, ask them to pray and fast, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do. i got these personal attendants. They don't even know God. They're not Jewish. I'm going to have them fast and pray too. Can I tell you something? If you're here this morning and you're watching online and you don't even believe in God, you don't believe that God answers prayer, I challenge you to risk. Just say, help. You'll be amazed. And maybe even ask somebody else, if you don't know how to pray, I don't know how to pray, would you ask God to help me for me? And see what God does. God loves it. God loves it when his people ask for prayer. God does it. And so she does. And then it says right there in chapter 5 on verse 1, on the third day, after three days of this, Esther put on her royal robe, and she stood in the inner courts of the palace in front of the king's hall. Now, really, understand that now she finds herself in a place of great risk and of great harm. She knows that bad things can happen when she does this. If she goes to the king and he's not asked her to come, it's a capital offense. 
she could die. Number three in your notes, ask God for courage. Always, 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 always. Somebody say always. Always. When God calls you to do something for him, there will be some measure of difficulty and risk required. And if you don't ask for courage, you will falter and you will not act. You will not do anything about it. To pursue God's call upon your life, courage is required. Maybe you're right now is in your marriage. That right now, you got to focus on your marriage. It requires courage to stay in the marriage, to stay in the conversation when it's hard and challenging. And when it's hard and challenging, that's when God is doing spiritual formation in you both. When you get honest with grace and truth, powerful thing, it takes courage to stay in the fight. It takes courage to be a mom or a dad. It takes courage to be a dad to know when, when your child is young and they can't make healthy decisions on their own, for you to step in and to make the call to say yay or nay, knowing they may say, I hate you. I'll never talk to you again. It takes courage to step in and be the advocate for your kid when they can't be an advocate for themselves. It takes courage that in a time of inflation, with prices going up and the start market going down, it takes courage to stay on a path of generosity, of giving of your time, your talent, and your money to God. It requires risking that you trust that God is going to do what God says he's going to do. And I can let go of what I have, and courageously I will, because I know that God will provide because he already has. Courage. One of my buddies was walking with his wife at night, just lamenting about this hard conversation he had to have with his own King Xerxes in his life. And he tells his wife, man, I just think about having this conversation. You know, my palms get really sweaty. And a little bit later, he says, you know, every time I think about that conversation, my mouth gets really dry. And she did not have the gift of mercy. She just said, lick your palms. That's exactly what Mordecai said to Esther. Esther, it's getting hard. It's about getting tough. Just lick your palms and go in there and have that conversation. And so she does. And so she stands in there, and she's about to walk in before the king. What's he going to do? Is he going to see me, or is he going to kill me? Capital offense. So she steps in. The king steps out. In verse 3 of chapter 5, he said, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, and it will be given to you. And I'm sure she's thinking, "Woo! he didn't kill me. So far, I'm still alive. And some of you hear this for the first time. You think, man, that's pretty good news, right? Now, I want to make sure you understand the context. This is king talk for saying, I'm in a good mood right now. Take advantage of it while you can. Okay? That's, that, that's really all that he is saying. If King Esther, if Esther would have walked in and said, hey, hey, King, honey, it's been 30 days. Long time no see. What you up to? You going to give me half, your, yeah, half the kingdom? Yeah, I'll take it. Thank you very much. She would have totally missed it, and the king's tune would have changed. This is what the king was saying. Hey, Esther, uh, you want to have the remote control tonight? It's all yours. That's really all he was saying. And if she would have said, hey, king, yeah, I want you to revoke 
Right now, revoke the edict that you're going to kill all my people. Number two is I want you to admit you made a mistake in putting Haman in charge because he's a ruthless, vile man. And I want you to do everything you can to get rid of him and tell me I was right and you're wrong. If she would have taken that approach with her husband, things would have gone downhill fast. So she doesn't. So she uses wisdom. So right down there in verse 4, she says, well, okay. Here's what I'm going to do, king. I'm going to have a party. You want to come? Well, yeah, I want to come. I'm there. Bring Haman with you. Now, let me stop right there. When you are engaged in your mission and you're facing great difficulty, trusting God and prayer and fasting are necessary, but they cannot replace the need for wisdom. In your notes, number four, ask God for wisdom. Esther does not throw up a Hail Mary. She just doesn't start talking and just throwing things out of her mouth. In this time of fasting and prayer, she gained insight into who she was talking to. So she formed her plan and strategy very carefully and how she was going to talk to him. I am amazed at the number of people that come into my office and I meet who feel like God has touched him to go do something, and they just dive into it on impulse and make it worse. And they don't stop ever to back up and pause and to ask God for wisdom before they start. The greatest thing you ask God for is not for help, though that is very important, is that you ask God for wisdom because God is going to ask you to do something in your life that on your own knowledge and power, you will not solve it. You will make it worse. And the Bible says very clearly in the book of James, we talked about this this summer, if you lack wisdom, ask God for it. He will give it to you. So Esther does. And so she says, hey, listen, I'm going to have a party. You want to come? And the king says, yeah, I'm come. I'm all over it. So the king and Haman, they go to the party that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, I'm still in chapter 5, the king asked her again, now what's your petition? Hey, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be regretted. And here's her response right there in verse 8 of chapter 5. Now, if the king, here's the wisdom. I want you to notice how she words it. This is wise words. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I'm already going to prepare. And then I'll answer the question. In other words, hey, king. If you really want to hear what I'm going to have to say and you like me, come to my party. And if you come to my party, you're already agreeing to do what I'm asking you to do before I even tell you what it is. So just come to the party. I'll have another party. And by you coming, I know that you trust me and you're going to do already what I ask, even though I haven't asked. Do you see what she's doing? I mean, this little woman, she's just talking circles around these two men who think they're all smart and everything. So Haman gets all excited because there's another party. And it says right there in verse 9, Haman left that day happy and in high spirits. He's going, "Woo! I got another party to go to. I'm so happy. But when he walks out, you see there in the scriptures, he sees Mordecai. Mordecai is the only guy who's not afraid of Haman. He's the only guy that does not stroke his ego and feed his need to be in control and power. And I want you to notice what happens after this. It says, he went away happy, but, so it's in verse 10. 
calling together his friends and Zerus. This is Haman. Haman and his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth. He boasted about his many sons. He boasted about all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman said. That's not all. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she's given. And she's invited me to come along with the king. It's going to be her and him and me and it's awesome, but all of this, it gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Isn't that amazing? He's so happy. He's in high spirits, going to another party. He's going through all of the assets that he has in his life, all the many sons he's given. He says, but none of that gives me any pleasure. Because I just need more power and more control over this one guy. That's another indicator of a shadow mission. In your notes, if you're taking notes, a shadow mission indicator, your need for more. More is never enough. This is life, the miserable nature of life when you try to live outside the kingdom of God. I just got to have more wealth, more power, more control, more, 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 because more is never enough, and you'll always want more, and it will eat you up. And here's another one, that you hand out too much power to another person. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your in-laws. Maybe it's somebody in your circle. You go, you know what? I am a miserable human being. I have all this stuff because this one person doesn't treat me the way I want to be treated. This one person doesn't respect me the way I want to be respected. This one person doesn't stroke my ego the way I want it to be stroked. And because of that, my life is awful. How would you like to be one of his sons? All of these sons that love their dad... And they, he can't even appreciate that because it's one little person. How many of us allow our lives to be destroyed and caught up because of that one little person? That's Haman. And Haman has a wife who has an idea. And so she says down there in verse 14, hey, I got an ideal husband. You're so miserable. Hey, why don't you go out there and set up some gallows right outside the house? Make it 75 foot tall so everybody can see and kill Mordecai tomorrow. Why don't you do that? In the very last verse, it says, this suggestion delighted Haman. He said, I'm going to do it. And so he does. Now, all this is going on, the king couldn't sleep. He had insomnia. And so he calls in his personal servant and says, hey, I want you to read me a story. Now, what, what, what do you think, what, what, what sort of book, bedtime book, do you think you wanted to be read from? It's called The Annals of the King. Anybody have any idea what the book you think the journals of the Annals of the King would be about? Who would it be about? It'd be about the king. He said, they said, so, so king, what do you want us to read? We want you to read me a story, read me a story about me. And so they read him a story about him. And it's about an earlier time in his life when his life actually got spared from an assassination attempt by a man named Mordecai. He had no clue. He's just off the charts. Unbelievable. He said, really? And it says in verse 3 of chapter 6, what honor and recognition has this Mordecai guy received? I mean, he wanted to make sure everybody knew that, man, the king was happy that this guy saved him from his death, right? Because who wants to be assassinated? The king goes, I don't want to be assassinated. I want everybody to know, you saved me from somebody taking me out. 
you're going to have a party. You're going to have something great for you. So he says, has anything been done for this Mordecai? They said, nope, nothing. He said, well, that's got to change. Is there any nobles in the house? They said, yeah, there's one. Haman's here. Bring him in here. I want to ask his idea. Now, you need to understand this. Haman's about to come into the palace for the sole purpose of asking Xerxes, I want to kill Mordecai on these gallows that I built. And so now he walks into this situation, and the king asked him a question. Go read the text. He says, hey, 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 Haman, what should the king do for someone that he wants to honor? What do you think? And so he's going, oh, this is a very key moment. This is a very dramatic moment. And if this is a movie, this is where they let you know what the person or play, what they're thinking in their head. Well, who else would the king want to honor but me? Right? This is a picture of pride before the fall. And so Haman says, well, I think what I think you should do, I think you should get a royal horse that the king himself has ridden on. I think you should get a royal robe that the king himself has worn. And I think you should put a royal crest on the horse itself, even get the horse gets a crown. And I think you should pick one of your highest officials in your whole kingdom to take the reins of that horse and put that man on top of the horse and just lead him through the whole town and shouting, this is what the king does for someone he wants to honor that he is so pleased with. And the king says, great idea. The guy I want to honor is Mordecai. Hey, Haman, you lead him around town. Now, th this is where the story picks up, and it's about to go downhill fast uh, uh, for Haman. And so right there in chapter 7, he, he's done this. It's the next day, and the king and Haman says they go into the queen bester, to the banquet. They're there at the banquet. And again, the king says, hey, queen, what's your petition? What do you want? It'll be given to you. What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And then down in verse 4, we finally hear, finally hear, I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Now, please understand, this is a very dramatic moment in, in the story. Because up to this point, the king did not know that his wife was Jewish. He did not know that she was a part of this people that was going to be wiped out. And now she's going to know. And Esther's just standing there. She's had the courage to say it. She's had the courage to put it out there. If I perish, I perish. In fact, she has totally died to her own ego. In your notes, number four, number five, my ego has to die to accomplish the calling God has upon my life. There is no safe way to be great. There is no great way to be safe. You have to die. We pray for safety. We pray for protection. We need to be praying for courage and wisdom to step into the call that God has upon my life and to die to my ego. And so now the stage is set. And both Haman and Esther, they're just waiting to see what the king is going to say. And it says right there in verse 5, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. And the king was furious. 
decide that Haman had to be executed. And one of his eunuchs said, hey, king, you know, Haman just got finished building some gallows right outside his house uh, to kill Mordecai. Why don't you kill him on that? Good idea. Go do it. Boom. He's gone. Can you imagine? So now Esther has seemed to have won, right? But there's even a bigger picture of her success. The king needs a new chief of staff because his chief of staff is gone. He just killed him. He appoints Esther to go do a search party for his chief of staff. Who do you think gets to be chief of staff? Mordecai. The very guy that Haman detested. The one guy that wouldn't bow down to him. He gets all of his wealth, all of his power, and all of his influence. Please listen. The first will be last, and the last will be first. When your ego get ready for the fall. But there's one other issue. The people of Israel, the edict is still out there. They're going to be annihilated. And she comes to her, her husband and says, listen, if you don't change it, they're going to die. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. So he takes the ring that he had given to Haman, that Haman used to send the letter, and he gives it to Mordecai. He says, Mordecai, you write whatever letter you want, put my signature with my ring on it, boop, and it will be done. And all the people of Israel are saved. Go read the text. What's even more miraculous, not are the people of Israel saved, but other nations began to believe in the one true God because of a little girl named Esther who said yes to the call that God had upon her life. Now, I want to share one piece of irony before we wrap this up in a more personal way. This right here is an amazing story about the people of Israel. When you go read the Old Testament, the people of Israel has an incredible, incredible history. They're called out miraculously by Abraham from nothing. They become something. They cross this incredible body of water. Then they wind up watering or wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. They finally, for a very short period of time, live in a land and peace and prosperity to show to the world what it is to live to one true God. Not many gods, but to live under the light of the one true God. And then they are exiled and they experience suffering. And they experience suffering for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. And because of that suffering, they came to love the story of Esther. Because this is a story of a people who were in suffering. And then God answered their suffering call through this one little woman who said yes to the call. And they love this little story so much to this day. You read the text over in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9. It talks about this little celebration called Purim. That every year, even to this day, the Jewish people celebrate Purim, which is the life of the story of Esther. And in every Jewish household, they read this little book about Esther. And there's four verses they read more than they loudly because they're, voices of redemp- they're verses of redemption and hope. And this is a huge celebration. It's almost like Mardi Gras. It's a raucous parade and raucous little noisemakers and, and lots of partying and drinking going on. In fact, there's so much. Uh, one ancient rabbi put this right here. A man is obligated to drink enough wine on Purim, that's a celebration of Esther, that he cannot distinguish between blessed be Mordecai from cursed be Haman. Now, very important note, that's not in the Bible. So don't be going partying like that. That's in a rabbinic 
Talmud deal. But the point being, this story was so big. For years and years, they would have these plays in Europe. From the Middle Ages on. And they would have these plays about Europe. And they would talk about Esther. And the kids would cheer, cheer, cheer. And Mordecai, cheer, cheer, cheer. Haman's name, boo, 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 hiss. They have no longer have those plays anymore. Anybody know why? Because of a Haman whose name was Hitler. who had a genocide that really happened. It's called the Holocaust. Now, I want to pause here for a second and say something that's really kind of out of context for this weekend, kind of, sort of. But not really. As I read this text and I became aware and I thought about our own particular nation, that, that nations have shadow missions. Nations can get focused on something that is a shadow of who God called them out into existence to be. And on this Labor Day weekend, which is not really a patriotic weekend, I know, but with flags all over around, I just had all these patriotic thoughts. I thought about this story. I began thinking about two of my uncles who both fought in World War II. I've told you about them before, Uncle Rio and Uncle D. Uncle Rio served under Patton in an army tank. Uncle D was a tail gunner in the Pacific. And my grandma Owen and my papa Owen, they had this, this map of the war, best they could tell for where they were, so they could, based on letters they had received on where they were and prayed for them. And they would turn on the old Phil Cole radio and gather around that radio at night to hear about the war, about their sons fighting against a tyranny of evil against the nation to wipe a people out. And I got to tell you, when I heard those stories as a kid growing up, I was so proud of my two uncles who answered the call to serve for a greater good for the world and a greater purpose. And as I think about our nation today and where it stands, and you don't hear me talk about this very much, but I would ask you to pray for our nation because I believe a shadow mission has grabbed hold of us and we're living for a shadow mission and for you to pray for the salvation of our nation. And if you don't know how to pray this little hymn, this great hymn that we sing, America, 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 just God shed your grace on us and mend our every flaw. Just mend our, we got so many flaws that you would pray that way for the purpose of our nation. But you need to know that religion also has shadow missions. Churches have shadow missions. Jesus does not. But Christianity does. And so many churches have gotten off path from the main thing. And we don't want to be that church. And I'm asking you, as you think about the world and you think about this existence in which we live and all the needs, that you would pray, we would be faithful to the purpose and the call that God has upon us as a church, to be the church in the world that needs to know who Jesus is. That is our mission. 
Now, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know the world is so big and you and I are so small. I know. I know we are just ordinary people. You're just one person. But so was Esther. Esther was an ordinary one person. And I know it's not your fault. I know it's not your fault. The world is a mess. But it's your time. And I know, I know that your little position and your little mission means more to God in the scope of eternity than you can even realize. It does. And what you and I need more than courage and more than wisdom is the conviction that you and I are not on this earth doing what God sent us to do on our own. That you are not alone. And that he is with you. And he'll never leave you. While Dallas and I were on vacation this summer with our family, we had the privilege of going to Hawaii because kind members in this church who have a timeshare and a condo, they gave us access to this condo. And so it was just a wonderful gift. Beautiful beach on Kauai. And one morning, I got up before anyone else did. I went down to the beach, and I had the whole beach to myself, watching the sun with my Bible coming up, and I'm reading in this book. And there's one guy I noticed on the way on the other end of the beach, so far away, I didn't even, hardly even this big old giant Goliath guy doing martial arts, something on the beach. And I'm just sitting there reading, and out of nowhere, I hear this little water lapping, and this little kid kind of comes up the shore on a surfboard. I'm going, where'd this kid appear from? How's he out surfing by himself? He said, hi. I said, Hi. He said, what you doing? I said, I'm reading the Bible. I said, what you doing? He said, I'm surfing. I said, what's your name? My name is Sam. What's your name? I said, my name is Rick. I said, Sam, how long have you been surfing? Seven years. I said, how old are you? Eight. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a little bit kid. He said, how long have you been reading the Bible? I said, a long time. I said, Sam, what, what do you like about surfing? Why, why are you out there doing it? He said, well, I'm just peaceful. He said, why do you like reading the Bible? Yeah, it gives me peace. He said, you know, I, I really like surfing. I said, well, well, because I meet all sorts of people like you. And he started talking to me back and forth, back, asking about my kids and my family and why we were here and where we came from. All this, I mean, this amazing kid. And we're having this conversation back and forth. And he finally we got kind of go, I thought it was the end. He said, hey, listen, can I call you Uncle? I'm glad he didn't say Papa. I had to say no. I'm sorry. There's only three kids that people can call me Papa. I said, yeah, sure. I said, Sam, how did you get out of here? How did you get here? And he, went, he looked down the end of the beach, and he waved, and that big old gigantic hulk of a Goliath man doing Taekwondo said, hi, son. And then I realized that kid wasn't confident and brave with this stranger because of his skills or his personality, but because he knew he was not alone and that his dad was watching. And his dad was really, really big, and he knew Taekwondo. <laughs> In your notes, the final thing for you to grab hold of, my, my mission, God is always the main character in my mission. It looked like little Israel was out there all by themselves. Exile, far from home, read the Bible. 
God's name is not even mentioned in the book. But there was a little girl who named Esther that knew that God was there. And she said, hey, Mordecai, would you be my uncle? Now, I want to make sure you understand this, that God is with you even when you can't see him. And I want to prove it to you like this. In this story, how is it that of all the women in the empire, that little Jewish girl named Esther becomes queen? How is it, and all the other people, men and women in the empire, that Mordecai was the one that saved the king from an assassination plot? And how is it when the king had insomnia on that very night that Haman was building the gallows? And how is it, of all the stories read to the king that night, it was the story of Mordecai saving the king's life? And how is it the scheming murderer Haman became a victim of his own scheme? And how is it that Mordecai, the intended Victim becomes actually the replacement, the chief of staff for the king. And how did the king's ring, which was on Haman's finger, wind up on Mordecai's finger? And how did the noose meant for Mordecai's neck wind up on Haman's neck? And how is it that a group of people that were supposed to be wiped off the face of the earth, the Jews, they stay and the Persians don't exist today? How is it? The writer wants you to know. That even in exile, no Jerusalem, no temple, no Sanhedrin, far from home, surrounded by problems, difficult assignment, that God was right in the middle of it. That even though God's name was not mentioned, God's heart was never absent, and God's arm was never missing. So here's what I want to say to you this morning. Online and in the house, in your position Never give up. Don't you quit. Don't you throw up the towel. Whether it feels like you're being successful or you may feel like you're never going to be successful. When you feel like that God is not even close and never around doing anything in the middle of your life, regardless of whether you can sense the presence of God or He is absent, don't you give up because I promise you God is working. Not you. You may not be working, but God is working all the time in unseen and unlikely ways. In mangers and in crosses, God is working. In carpool lines and in cubicles, God is working. In the birthing room and in a hospice house, God is working, I promise you. When you're unemployed and you get a new job, God is working. You may not see it, but across all Johnson County and across all Tarrant County, across America and around the entire world, God is working. When you feel hopeless, when you feel helpless, when you feel gifted, when you feel giftless, God is with you. And who knows that you have come to your current position for such a time as this. It's not your fault. It's not your fault the world is like it is. It's not your fault, but it's your time. And if you're not dead, God is not done. If I'm not dead, he's not done. Amen. Come on, let's sing it out. If I'm not dead, you're not done. No, greater things are still to come. Oh, I believe if I'm not dead, you're not done. 
testimony from death to life. Cause grace rewrote my story. And I'll testify by Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm justified. This is my testimony. Oh, I'm alive. This is my testimony from death to life. Cause grace rewrote my story. God, we're not dead, so you're not done with us, and we thank you for that, Lord. Come on, one more time. Can we celebrate that, church? We thank you, Lord. Walk out this door. Just take 30 seconds. Just open your hands up. And say, God, help me. I can't do it by myself. Help me. Help me to overcome my shadow mission and help me to fulfill the calling you have upon my life. Use me, Lord. Help me. Give me courage. Not to play it safe. Give me wisdom to know when to speak and when to listen. And God, would you help me to die to my ego, to die to myself, to not live just for myself, but to live for you. Jesus Christ in me. And God, I pray that as I walk through this journey, you will make my, me aware that you're working. Show me signs. Show me little, little peaks, God, that you're doing your thing. And use me. Use me to make the world a better place. Starting in my home. In Jesus' name. Amen.